Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mercy Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. Now then, it's enjoying something of a revival on Channel 5 at the moment, so we thought it a good idea to turn the clock right back to the late 70s and the beginning of the classic British TV series set in Yorkshire, All Creatures Great and Small. Based on the books by James Herriot and beginning in the 1930s, the series was a huge success for the BBC, with Christopher Timothy as Herriot and Robert Hardy as Siegfried Farnan. Peter Davison, he also of Doctor Who fame, was Siegfried's younger brother, Tristan. Herriot's wife was later played by the late, great Linda Bellingham, but in the beginning she was portrayed by Carol Drinkwater. And Carol has been reminiscing about those very early days of the show in 1978 with Ashley. I wonder what she makes of the Channel 5 version. Let's find out, shall we? Enjoy! All Creatures Great and Small, of course, is enjoying something of a little bit of a revival at the moment. So we thought it was an appropriate... it's a rather big. <laughs> a big revival, yeah, yeah. So we thought it was um, appropriate to sort of look back at sort of the beginning and the original. And You were there from the very beginning in 1978, I think it was. Tell us, just well, take us back. Take us back to how it all, how it all, how it, how it all started, basically. I think it was 1977, if I'm correct, but I'm not very good at those dates and things, and best forgotten at this age now. Um, I was working in Devon with. I was shooting a picture with John Hurt and Alan Bates and Susanna York, uh, a film directed by Jerzy Skolomowski and um, uh, produced by Jeremy Thomas called The Shout, which won an award in Cannes. It's a rather marvellous film, actually. And while I was there, my agent had arranged... I had two weeks off from filming, and my agent had arranged me to go to Germany to do um, a week or 10 days or something on a language programme over there. English actors working with German crew and, and sort of a German, very basic setup. And so I had to come back to London to my flat to pick up my passport and change and everything. And while I was at my flat, my agent called and said, on your way to Heathrow, can you pop into the BBC? A producer called Bill Sellers wants to have a word with you. He's looking for an actress to play a farmer's daughter in a new series called All Creatures Great and Small. It's about a vet. And I knew nothing about it. I'd heard nothing about it. He said, be at the BBC in an hour. So I rushed out the door shot off, um, having forgotten my passport, <laughs> got to the BBC, saw Bill and met Ted Rhodes, who was the um, script editor. And they said, have you read the books? And I said, no. And he said, try and read them. It's good, gentle humour. Nice to meet you. We've seen every actress in London, he said. Um, and off I went to the airport, um, managed to talk my way on the plane. I bought two of the books at the airport and read them while I was in Munich. Got a message from my agent saying, um, Bill would like to see you on your way back before you return to Devon. I went back into the BBC for like five minutes. And by the time I got back to my flat, he'd offered the role to my agent. And I turned it down. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah. Well, you weren't. I turned how, it down. How great, what a great thing it was. Why did you turn it down then? Well, I turned it down for a couple of reasons. I, I very much wanted to go into film. That was my real passion. And there I was in, in working in Devon with people like John Hurt and Alan Bates of that kind of stature. So I kind of hoped that that was the direction my career would take. And John Hurt said to me, I think you should take this because whether you want to do film or not, it does sound like something that, you know, could be a stepping stone anyway. And my agent said that he wouldn't represent me anymore if I didn't take it. So <laughs> my arm was kind of behind my back, <laughs> wrestled behind my back. So I did take it, 250 quid a an episode was my fee that's still what I get my royalties on <laughs> so um off we went and um we all met up at the BBC for lunch that's where I first met Peter and, and Chris Timothy and Robert Hardy who we call Tim because his first name is Tim um that was my first meeting with all of them and then they went off to Yorkshire and started filming a week or so before me and then I went up and joined them and off we all got to what has turned out to be an extraordinary journey that still goes on. I mean, here we are, 40-something years later, and here I am still talking about it. It is very weird, the life, the life this programme has had. So you didn't know a great deal about it. You, you, you read the, the books um, a little bit before. What, what was your impression about what kind of role you would have in this series? And did that come to fruition, or, or did it sort of alter a bit? Because, of course, 
TV is not necessarily the same as the books kind of thing? Uh, yes, it did alter. When I first read, the, when I read the first two books in Munich, my first reaction was that they were indeed um, light, gentle humour, but at the same time, very truthful, a very good writing lesson, by the way, Alf White gave me as I am now a writer. I mean, I learned a great deal from his work. It's gentle humour. It's never condescending. It includes the reader and his audience. Um, you clearly see from from page one that he loves the world that he's writing about and that he has created. It's, uh, it's not something that he's just knocked together to get another book contract. You feel the love. And that, that I think we, we very successfully transmitted to the screen. Uh, this is not boasting because it's an entire team and I was one tiny cog. Um, I think that we took over. Helen in the books, I then of course, when I got back to England and, and realized I was going to be in this series, I obviously went and read the rest of the books and then started getting scripts. Helen in the books uh, was based on, uh, largely based on Joan White, that was Alf, James Harriet's his uh, nom de plume is James Harriet, Alf White's uh, real name. His wife Joan was the main inspiration for Helen. I believe there was other bits as well, but I don't really know anything about that. Joan was a very formidable figure. She was a very strong woman, an inspiring woman. Um, while Alf was the um, let's say the life and soul of the party. Joan was the backbone of, of, of their family life and their, you know, their, their, their living, really. And, and she had very, very clear and um, high expectations. So um, as soon as I met her, the first time I met her when we were filming, she, they were all sitting there. I was later than the others because I was away filming, doing something else on another day. And when I got back to the hotel, they were there with Chris and Robert Hardy and Bill Sellers. And Joan opened her handbag and pulled out a photograph of herself when she was about 27 years old and said, that's what I looked like when I was your age. And it was like a challenge to me. It was a very pretty photograph. She looked very lovely indeed. So it was a kind of challenge that she, like a card she threw on the table, you know, or a, or a, or a, a glove for a duel. And I kind of thought, okay, right. Well, she's expecting something of me. There's no doubt about it. She was the first woman in her village to wear trousers. So I, um, the BBC made me some lovely pairs of period trousers that uh, as soon as the programme started going out, they got letters saying, oh, she would be considered a slut if she was wearing trousers at that time, which was nonsense. But um, the BBC's edict immediately was no more trousers for Carol Drinkwater. So that's when we got all the floral dresses and etc. And I would have liked to see Helen on screen a little feistier. Um, I mean, I hope I brought my own feistiness to it. But, you know, it, it was more or less, Helen was a background figure being a woman. You know, it was about the men rather than um, the women. I mean, Mrs. Hall and Helen answered the phone, made the tea, uh, offered solace, laid the table. And occasionally Helen said, no, James, I won't stand for it or Siegfried, this is wrong. But on the whole, um, they were the supporting, and I don't mean in terms of acting roles, they were the supporting figures within the structure of the household and the village indeed, you know. Um, and I had wanted to give Helen slightly more meat than that. But, and it was in the books, to some extent it was in the books, but um, the BBC wanted something that was wholesome and they got frightened when the letters came about the, about the trousers and they backed off a bit. So that was in the end, the reason that I kind of left the show because I felt that it couldn't really go anywhere further unless Helen blossomed. So anyway, so that's, that's my answer to Helen on screen compared to Helen in the books. What about the other actors? I mean, had you worked with any of them before? No, I didn't know any of them at all. Gosh, we were lucky. I mean, we really struck it lucky because we were such pals, you know. Um, we, lo we really loved each other. I loved every one of those three men in different ways, obviously. Um, I, and I still do. I mean, I miss Tim, Robert Hardy. I, I, I saw somebody sent me something yesterday about um, the stars reunited, which we did in, I think, 2004. And, and there was the clip of, of Tim, Robert Hardy came up and I quite teared up because... I really did love him. I, he was a kind of um, 
he was a kind of flagship leader for us. You know, if there was something that had to be dealt with at the BBC, you could be sure that Tim would get out there and fight for us. And um, Peter and I were the, um, the least experienced. Peter less than me, I think, even. Peter's a year younger than me. And uh, we were the two that, at, the, at the lunch in London, the meeting, meet and greet before we all went off to Yorkshire. Peter and I were the ones that were clearly utterly terrified. <laughs> Um, and Tim, of course, Robert Hardy was, you know, was on the stage and very much in control of the situation and, and clearly the leading actor in the piece. Um, and Chris was very delighted to get the job. He'd fought very hard for it, had, um, you know, a big family to feed and was very pleased to have such regular uh, employment and a role, of course, that turned into such a huge success for him. But they're all wonderful people. I mean, all three of them are wonderful men. And had Christopher and Robert worked together before, do you know? Or was that the first time for them as well? I don't think any of us had worked together before. But I'm not, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet the house against that. If anybody had worked together, it would have been just Chris and um, Tim, Robert Hardy, because Peter, I know they hadn't met before. And I know, obviously, my own situation. So, but I don't think so. I think we were all absolutely new. I think the day we met was the day we met. And of course, I mean, obviously, you're actors and you've got to get to know people very quickly and all the rest of it. But you're dealing with a show which is, you know, obviously there were inside scenes and things, but a lot of this was location-based, it was out in Yorkshire, you had to deal with the, you know, the, 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 the elements, you had to deal with the animals, you had to deal with all sorts of things. So dealing with all that and dealing with, you, you know, the chemistry between you as well, tell us a bit, about, a bit about that side of things. What sort of baptism of fire was it arriving in Yorkshire and having to deal with all these things? Well, of course, in the beginning, it was the men that were trained. They all went up in advance and started filming um, uh, to uh, uh, the start of the filming to um, to work with Jack Watkinson, who was our, our vet on location. And um, he taught them some of the tricks of the trade. I didn't have to do any of that in the beginning because it wasn't intended that Helen would do more than make tea, etc., etc. However, after Christmas of the first uh, 1978, just the week before we were meant to go to air on, or in fact, we did go to air on the 8th of January, 1978. And I know that's right, because I checked it for something I was writing the other day. And Chris had a terrible car accident. So suddenly the whole schedule was completely smashed apart. And I had to, I, along with, with Peter and Tim, had to take up some of Chris's scenes, both for the last two episodes of series one and into episode two to keep us, uh, to series two, to keep us going. So suddenly I was, it was a real baptism of fire for me because I hadn't been trained to do any of the, any of the veterinary work, but I did. I had to go out and we did one scene, Robert Hardy and I, all night on top of a hill on one of the dales in February in snow up to our knees. They were feeding us brandy to try and keep, keep us alive and waiting for this lamb to be born and when the lamb was and I she was the ewe was taking ages and um Jack Watkinson kept saying to me it's all right Carol it's gonna happen now any any minute now you know just get yourself back down there on your knees and it'll and the camera's all going and when the lamb actually came out I was so astounded at this kind of <laughs> this wet <laughs> funny little creature and my mouth was like cut and the director said, Carol, Helen has seen this many times before. I was kind of gobsmacked. <laughs> my, my chin was on my corduroy trousers. And they said, OK, let's go again. So, of course, by then the, the baby had come out, the lamb had come out. So we had to just redo that bit, put her back in a little bit without any harm, of course, and do it all over again. So I wasn't chain, trained for all of that stuff, but um, I didn't mind it. I actually... I grabbed at the idea that Helen had something extra to do. Talking to um, Jean Rogers and also to uh, Frederick Pine uh, from Emmerdale about Emmerdale in the very early years and how they had to get very involved in all the animal side of things and the sheep shearing and all that kind of stuff. And of course, you would do that was all happening in this in in this particular program as well in terms of the veterinary stuff and all the rest of it. You had to get your hands dirty. And the great thing about it was it did make those programmes 
much more authentic, didn't it? Very much more so. Very much more so. I mean, I, I, you could see clearly that this was really happening. And Jack Watkinson and Eddie um, Eddie uh, Straithwaite, I think his name was, who was our when we when when we were doing in the early. Uh, series we did the interior stuff in at Pebble Mill Studios in Birmingham. Later, because Robert Hardy said he wanted it all on location on, or on film, we did everything in Yorkshire. But we had two vets earlier, so Jack Watkinson spent a lot of time going around looking for animals that had precisely the ailment that we needed in the program, so that we could really treat them you know they would bring them in they would have all the symptoms that they really need and of course we weren't doing the treating jack was doing the treating and the animals the farmers were very pleased because their animals were treated free because <laughs> good old yorkshire good old yorkshire money there <laughs> they, they got the animals treated for nothing because we were using them so of course you know we would do or chris or tim or whoever it was would do whatever it was was required for the animal and then jack of course would come in and do if it was the castration of a horse for example <laughs> and none of us were actually castrating the poor stallions but um they would find an animal that actually needed whatever was the ailment and, and went to a great deal of trouble to do that too we'll be back after a quick break you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your, in your little, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We all, we all artists over here, man. I'm trying, oh, yeah, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying, oh, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Me, yeah. Me, we all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We going to have this like, Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kai, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit right now. I got lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I don't, play, don't play with it. No. Take that shit seriously. Yeah, amazing, amazing, amazing. And of course, we'll talk a little bit about what they're doing now. But I know things have changed. The rules and laws, and in terms of filming with animals, are all completely different now. But you were saying how you uh, you you'd be out filming whatever, and, and I presume. You know, you told me a little bit about being out in the weather and whatever, but I presume that became the norm, did it? There was a lot of outside stuff in all weathers. You know, you were having to deal with the elements on a regular basis, were you, in, in terms of filming? Oh, yes. And, and uh, I, I mean, I live in the south of France now, so let me tell you, I mean, I don't, I don't think I could stand it now. I don't think I've got the, the blood for it anymore. Um, you know, it, it, it got pretty, pretty... <laughs> pretty cold up there you know you'd feel so i mean we did the wedding scene uh, chris and i getting married james and helen getting married um in december we shot that scene in december just before the christmas break when chris had the accident and uh, there i was in my wedding dress i think i had three uh vests on and about you know thermal knickers on top on top of my own knickers and all of that you know so slowly you're getting padded out all the time and you're trying to look slim and not eating so you can look good in a wedding dress you've got all this underwear on but it was it would have been impossible otherwise i mean you know one was frozen to the bone so they would keep you warm with lots of coats and things occasionally i'm mean, not in those things we weren't given brandy because <laughs> we'd been blasted all the time but um it was only in that, that night scene but um you know you had to then whip everything off and and take a deep breath shoot the scene and pray to god that you got it so that you wouldn't have to keep redoing it and freeze all the time it got it got pretty um challenging sometimes but well, that's the job i know i know it's a job i know it's a job but it's still interesting to hear about it what um what was the thinking then behind um, stopping doing the scenes in, in, in Pebble Mill? Did Robert Hardy was keen, was he, on making it even more authentic, I presume? In the beginning, before we even started shooting, uh, Bill Sellers said that the exteriors would be done in Derbyshire. And Robert Hardy got up before we'd even started filming and said, well, then I'm out of here. We do it in Yorkshire, which is a beautiful county with all its own personality um, Derbyshire, lovely as it is, is not Yorkshire. And it's true, they do look different. Um, and so that was changed from the beginning. And um, first of all, I mean, when we were doing the studios in Pebble Mill, this was our, we did an episode of Fortnight, like every 12 days, and then we had two days off. What we did was we'd drive up, we'd start a, a series with a block of filming of four weeks in Yorkshire. 
Then we'd all drive to London and for six days we would rehearse the next episode in London. Then we'd all drive to Pebble Mill, arrive late on Sunday night and uh, rehearse, record Monday, Tuesday. That was the interiors. From there, Tuesday late afternoon, we'd all drive to Yorkshire, stay overnight in Yorkshire and then start a three, four day filming bout and then all the way back to London again. So it was pretty exhausting and never mind the, the miles clocking up on the cars. And I drove an old sort of tractor thing, well, a, a, a second world war um, Jeep is what I was driving. So it took me about twice as long to get to Yorkshire as anybody else. I had to sell it. I loved it, but I had to sell it in the end because I just couldn't get there. Um, so it was very, very exhausting. And, 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 um, Tim said, this is a waste of energy, which it was. We loved working at Pebble Mill. It was enormously efficient. It was cottage size. So we knew everybody. Um, and we had a very good team, there, extremely professional team there. But Tim said, well, let's take what we can of the team from Pebble Mill and just do it all in Yorkshire. And he made that, I think, a, a, one of the um, contractual agreements for his contract. So from, uh, from series three, we shot everything full time in Yorkshire. The downside of that was that, of course, um, you were away from home for five months or something. But, you know, you win and you gain. I mean, in my case, I was on, for those that had families and children, like Chris, it was harder. But uh, for those of us who were uh, at that time fancy free, um, it was less of a problem because it only, I didn't have cats to feed or dogs to feed or children to get to school or anything. So for me, it really didn't make that much difference. And I was in lovely countryside and I rented myself, by that time I rented myself a little cottage so that I could do, I was starting to write by then, so that I had my independence and my privacy and I was close enough to the set to see everybody when I wasn't filming if necessary. And also I had my privacy. Because don't forget by then we were very well known. People were coming from all over the world to see us. So if we were staying in one of the regular hotels, there would always be people waiting to meet us, which is fantastic. I've nothing against that. But if you've also got something else to do, it's it can be, quite time consuming or you end up in the bar with all you know with everybody whereas if I had a cottage on my own I was more disciplined I'd go home and do my writing I was writing a children's book my first book um and um you know I was able to go home I wouldn't be sitting having a glass of wine with somebody and in the makeup people or Peter or whatever I'd go home get on with my shower and get on with my work so I, I was able to be more disciplined. Did moving there then and not having the studio did that change the feel of the show? Did it change things for you? No, they built the entire interior of Skeldale House on a soundstage in Richmond. They took an old gymnasium, I think it was, and built it. And it, I think it was like three millimetres difference in size. So we walked, you know, very little in size difference. I don't know the precise amount. But we walked it so to get the feel of, because, you know, we got used to moving around that dining room, having our little apartment and everything that James and I had upstairs. So we got used to the size of it and the paces. And I mean, I know that sounds a peculiar thing to say, but when you're shooting something and you're moving to lines and everything, and you've got used over, over, 26 episodes to an absolute size of something and then it differs slightly you do have to adapt to that I mean we all did adapt it was no big trauma or anything but there was that slight difference just just a little the good thing was that we had um, makeup there at base and all of that as well and there were caravans that came out with us when we went out so uh, we were we were and by then of course because the series was so successful the BBC were willing to please us a little bit you know to a certain degree, the BBC is never over generous. Never let it be said. <laughs> no, you're absolutely true. That's absolutely true. <laughs> Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM. And if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. As well as amazing TV and film nostalgia, this podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz, where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? 
Skippy, 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 the bush kangaroo is all I can remember about. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that. The fifth season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you. Prisoner cell block... Someone B. Prisoner cell block H. Simply choose your favourite TV show or film and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com. Have a go at three British films. Just have a guess. Oh, Whistle Down the Wind, Carry On Up the Kyber. Um, no, this is rubbish. I'm sorry. No, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> they're not bad attempts, actually. And the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Mind of the Month quiz. What kind of programme was The Smoking Room? Oh, I've never heard of it. I don't know if I can accept that. Returns in October. That's another cracker, isn't it? They Uh, always are. (laughs) Only here. New to distinct nostalgia. Dale, how the hell did I end up here? Based on a true story. What choice do you have? Tell the world that Rock Hudson is gay? You're a good-looking kid. I don't have anyone else on my books like you. How about I start to represent you? A moving 40-minute drama based on the life and career of Rock Hudson. Yes! Good boy. You just made the best decision of your life. Written by Tim Fountain and starring Michael Xavier and Betty Bourne. Rock! Rock? Strong. Masculine. Rock Fitzgerald? Matt Fitzgerald. Sounds Irish. Nebraska, Washington, Hudson. Hudson. What about Rock Hudson? Get your coat on. I'm going to introduce Rock Hudson to Hollywood. Coming to Distinct Nostalgia on the 2nd of October to mark the 35th anniversary of his death. we got to do something about your voice, kid. We're going to snap your vocal cords. What? Ah. Uh, louder. Ah. Uh, louder. Uh. Listen here on the Distinct Nostalgia podcast or go to distinctnostalgia.com. Look, Dale, I'm dying of this godforsaken disease and... Pretty soon thousands, maybe millions, will die the same way. As you say, it was, in a way, very quickly, very successful. And I think a lot of it is probably to do with, obviously, the stories. But it's probably a lot to do with that beautiful, beautiful countryside, isn't it? You know, because it's a fantastic location, isn't it? Yes, I mean, the the books are actually set on the Yorkshire Moors because James Herriot... Parker, Alf White, um, worked out of Thirsk, which is in the moor, the Yorkshire Moors. But we went over to the Dales because there was much more scope for finding um, whole big expanses, big travelling shops, where there were no uh, pylons, no telephone wires, and there were loads of beautiful stone villages. So all of that was, was, was a given for us. You know, there was very little. I mean, obviously, they had to backdate some certain things but, um, and dress things accordingly but, um, and move out modern cars. But uh, there was an awful lot that was already there. And I know that when I used to, I used to like to drive myself to and from a location rather than in the location cars because then I could zip off when I was finished um, I would often just stop my car and get out of the car just to breathe in and, and, and just to inhale that beauty and all the different seasons the rust with that heather that bracken turned a kind of rust colour and then the mauve and those, those, those hill flowers you know the kind of almost like a heather was in blossom and, and the cow. I mean, it really is a magnificent countryside. There's no doubt about it. And that has, I mean, it has to be one of the blessings of the series. And it helped to put Yorkshire on the map. I mean, obviously Yorkshire, a very proud county and uh, been around for a very long time and much better than Lancashire, of course. Um, <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> Although I'm sat in Manchester, so I have to be quiet here. But um, you better but, yeah. be careful. There'll be a mob outside. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what, what you know, programs like um, in the 1970s was obviously was Emmerdale. There was um, uh, uh, Great and Small. There was also Last of the Summer Wine. I mean, there's a plethora of programs, and then later on, of course, Heartbeat and whatever. There's so many things started to be filmed and made in Yorkshire. I mean, Alcrystal Great and Small was what was part of that sort of. Well, it certainly helped the, the, the Yorkshire Tourist Board, is what I'm trying to say. Oh, incredibly. I mean, when we first started filming, there was nobody there. And by the time we were at, um, into series two already, 
there were coach loads of people coming and then the Americans started coming, you know, and, and then, you know, we, if we were in Asprey, there would already be loads of people there and sitting in the pubs and all of that. So it was all the business of having to clear everybody away, which took time. And then of course they'd all creep closer all the time and because they all wanted to see and fair enough, you know, and meet and greet and all that sort of thing. So um, it, the crowds got bigger and bigger as, as the series went on. Um, but you know, it, we certainly did a great deal for the Yorkshire uh, tourist board. There's no doubt. I'm going to have Harriet trails in America, and even in Russia, I think now there are Harriet trails. There are Harriet trails that people, you know, tourist things that they can come to England and do. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, it definitely did a, a wonders for, for for Yorkshire. Do you think there were any negatives though? With that was there any negatives for you in terms of obviously you had all these crowds and things you had to deal with, but do you think do you think you know that whole thing of it becoming sort of um, everybody focusing on the area. Did that, was there any, was there any backlash to that, do you know? Did anybody sort of get a bit annoyed by it? Or In the area? Well, what I've read, because I've been up there several times since for the other things, what I read, I went up to write an article for um, the Mail on Sunday Travel when they put out that, that Scottish pre-Harriet, do you remember, the pre-All Creatures um, that the Beeb did about five or eight years ago um, and I went up there then and one of the things that a lot of people said was that the success of the area had meant that many people wanted to buy second homes up there so the cost of property started rocketing and it meant that young farming people and those of the land or from the small towns were priced out of their own area and couldn't buy um, couldn't even get on the ladder you know the property ladder to start themselves off. So I think, I mean, culturally, socially speaking, socially speaking, I think that, that that is a downside for the area. I mean, obviously so much money is coming in with tourism that um, I suppose a lot of people turn a blind eye to that. But when an area starts um, being so popular that the local people have to move out, then uh, that is a bit of a concern, I think. And it's, it's a sadness for the people that, um, that are born and bred there, I suppose. No, I don't know how you deal with it. Yeah, no, I understand that. Going back to the, the show itself, uh, as you say, it was uh, authentically, you know, set in the 1930s, but it, it travelled, didn't it? it? It sort of, it was, it wasn't all in the 30s, it moved into the 40s, if I remember rightly. Is that right? Over I think when, when I, I left the show for the reason I told you at the beginning, that I felt that there wasn't enough uh, Helen to get her teeth into. Um, and then Linda Bellingham, the late Linda Bellingham, um, took over from me and then it went into the 50s i think it went into the 50s i've never i've never actually seen any of the program a tiny bits of when i was in it when i've had to watch things or i've been on the program and they've shown some of it but i i don't watch my own my own work and my own programs and so and i certainly didn't see linda's because it would have been a bit painful i think for me but um i think she shot in the 50s it was meant to be the 50s by the time that she came into it Okay, and you're, you say you you um, you, had your, you you say there was limitations about your part and your character. Did were you able to put anything extra into it, or were you? Were, did they did they insist on you keeping to the the script, or were, you know, were there times when you were able to say push back and say, well, actually, I think she should be doing this, that, and the other, you know. Well, I, you know, I, I had a conversation with Robert Hardy. I was always having conversations about Robert Hardy. I seemed to unburden myself to Tim. Um, I, I, and I was saying, you know, he said, he said, you're like a stallion at the starting gate or a racehorse at the starting, not a stallion, a racehorse at the starting gate. He said, I feel you waking, you know. And, and I said to him, you know, I just wish there was more. So he did actually talk to the scriptwriters. And there was a time then when they gave me the is still indoors, the accountancy of, of the veterinary practice, I think is what I had. Bookkeeping, bookkeeping is what I did. Oh God, bookkeeping. Um, and uh, so there were a couple of, we had some wonderful rows on screen about that, where Tim said, let's, you know, Carol, let's have Helen and, 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 and Siegfried or whoever it was, uh, I think it was with Tim, have a good old flaming row about the fact that they're not getting the, not, not putting the receipts in for the bookkeeping. So, you know, occasionally he would, he would suggest things that gave me a bit more meat and the scene that I could actually be more than just sweet Helen. Yeah, I think I'd avoided the bookkeeping, actually, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I do. I'm always in trouble about it. <laughs> snap, snap. <laughs> um, so how did it at the time 
change your life? Because suddenly all of you became sort of household names, didn't you? I mean, how did that affect you? Did you know, were you were you happy with it or was it quite a difficult thing to deal with? Because in those days, of course, the viewing figures were doing absolutely enormous, wouldn't they? We got up to 23 million sometimes. It was between 18 and 22 million normally. And once or twice we, we, we topped that towards 23. And I remember Bill coming into the BBC and opening the door and going, 23 million. Oh, I mean, imagine it now. It's just inconceivable. So, you know, 23 million people whose, uh, whose um, sitting rooms, living rooms you're in on a Sunday evening um, really creates a sense of intimacy between you and those people. I, I mean, during on our break between series one and series two, I think it was, I, I'm, I'm always traveling, I'm a great traveler, and I spent my 250 pounds time 11 episodes that I was in and took myself off to China. Um, I had to spend some time in Hong Kong to get a visa to go in because China was, it was 78. It had literally been open a year, I think, China then. And I was walking the Great Wall of China and I was saying to myself, quietly saying to myself, congratulations, Carol, you got yourself to China. What a clever girl you are. Because it was pretty hard to get to China then. And as I was standing, looking at this amazing view from the Great Wall of China, two or three people walked past me and said, that's Carol Drinkwater from All Creatures Great and Small. And that's when it hit me, the power of television. I mean, Ted Rhodes, the script editor, had said to me when I first got the role, he said, this is going to make you a household name. And I just kind of giggled. I mean, I didn't know what that meant to be a household name. But by the time I was 28, I was a household name. And it was not just in England. It was, I mean, when I say I, we, um, it was in Australia, it was in America, then it was in Germany. And it began to be that in my travels, for example, when I wasn't um, working on all creatures, if I was off writing, a, later writing a book or writing um, articles, travel articles for magazines and things, I'd be sitting on my own somewhere and people would come over to my table and say, Carol, please don't feel you've got to be on your own. We feel as if we know you. Come and join us. And that happened all over the world. Sweden, I went to work in the theater there for six months, two stints of three months. And I was immediately invited to nightclubs, to parties. I mean, I had a very jolly time back then when I was carefree and single because um, people felt they knew me already. And did, so you, did, there was, did you enjoy that, though? Or were the negatives of it, the fact that you couldn't escape people's eye in a way? Um, there became negatives, of course. Um, when Chris and I became a, a, a couple for a short while, then um, long after his marriage broke up, I hasten to say, um, then yes, that became very uncomfortable and um, I didn't like that at all. I, I kind of had to step back from all of that. It wasn't, didn't suit me a bit. Um, I'm not a naturally... Um, easily gregarious person. I think that's one of the reasons why writing suits me so well, though I love acting too. Um, I, I don't mind being solitary. I'm happy in, in my own company and I can sit for hours at my desk writing, reading, and if my husband's not here, I can be alone for days and days and days and it doesn't worry me. So I think that once it became very intrusive, it be personally was actually quite painful for me. Literally, you know, the... the when it got, especially when it got nasty, and it did get nasty, and that was a great pity. Very, for a very short while, and not amongst the crew and cast, I hasten to add, they were amazingly supportive. But, um, you know, people that didn't know the real story jumped on, you know, jumped to, to conclusions and judgments, and it got very nasty for me. And that was very difficult, painful, very painful. I, I, can, I can understand that. There's nothing worse than the, the British press, is unfortunately. Um, what about how it changed your life in terms of your career? I mean, you were saying that you got the chance to, to, to write in the Dales. You spent some time writing. So it helped you in terms of that side of your, your, your life, didn't it? Which is great. Um, how did it change your career in terms of acting? Because you, 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 you left the series, but did it sort of, did you feel that it typecasted you in a particular way or no, I wasn't that didn't happen to me at all I went off when I left the series I went off um and I did several things in Australia which is where I met my husband um he's a Frenchman and we met in Australia I played Captain Cook James Cook's wife in another Yorkshireman 
in uh, Elizabeth Cook in a, may, a huge uh, eight-part miniseries in Australia, uh, which is where I heard that I saw on television that Linda Bellingham was taking over for me, from me. So, um, so I, that, I got to do that. I, my first novel, the children's book I was writing, The Haunted School, we filmed that in Australia with my husband being the executive producer. That was bought by Disney in America and it won the Chicago Film Festival Gold Award for children's films. So uh, with me in the starring role, which I'd written for myself. <laughs> so um, there was lots of bounce-offs, you know. I mean, I was able to use Helen and use my new writing career to also uh, um, create roles for myself as an actress and also to move on I, I worked an awful lot abroad as I said I worked in Sweden I worked a lot in Australia I won a um, um, an Australian the equivalent of an Oscars um, film critics award um, on a film I made with Max von Sydow uh, where we played father and daughter the great Max von Sydow who everyone knows from the exorcist and things Max and I played father and daughter and we both won the um, the equivalent of the Australian Oscar. Um, so that was a wonderful experience, three months working with him in Australia. He was, a, you know, he was one of the kings of, of cinema, or was, God rest his soul, he's just died. Um, so that was great. Um, and then slowly the writing started to become more important in my life than the acting because I married my Frenchman and, you know, we bought our place in the south of France. And um, I didn't want to be away for three or four months at a time from him. I wanted to make the marriage work. It was important to me. Um, and so I concentrated on the writing and, it, you know, I was starting to get bestsellers and, and extremely good contracts. So it, without my choosing it, my, my, the direction of my life changed, you know. I mean, I'd love to do some more acting, even now. And I do get offered a few things, but maybe not the, the things that would make me jump up and down, but it would be lovely to do some more um, because I feel that it's a whole part of me that's not being expressed. Um, just a slight aside on that. Do you think, um, you know, do you think you're affected or like a lot of women are affected by, in our industry, uh, by the yes. ages? Yes, you think yes, yes. Before you even finish the sentence, yes. Absolutely, you know, I mean, I, I, you, you can probably see it. I, I, I'm starting to, to um, with lockdown, obviously we couldn't go to hairdressers and things. So I decided to grow my hair out. So I'm going gray for the first, I'm not entirely gray. I do hold back is still quite dark, but um, I've decided to actually just say, this is the age that I am now and, um, and be proud of it. And because I do have a career that allows me to keep working all the time. Um, I write, I write um, roles, characters in my books that are it was an an actress in her 80s in in my novel the lost girl um i write lots of women in their 40s women in their sick and in my latest novel the house on the edge of the cliff the leading character is an actress in her 60s looking back at very something happens in her life that takes her backwards but she's in her 60s so i'm proud to write uh, roles for women that are older and I, I i hope that soon producers might start putting some of these these books on screen and then they will be roles for me and for many of my friends or those who i admire i'd love that uh, absolutely absolutely i mean it's just you know um i bemoan this all the time this dangers and that exists in our in our, not actually, it's not just in our industry, actually. I mean, our industry is very guilty of it, I think. But I think it's overall of the time that we seem to have a society where everyone seems to be being put into sort of little, um, you know, sort of age ghettos all the time. I think it must yeah, be yeah, advertising yeah. and marketing that's done it over the years. But it's quite sad because actually, it's not very good for social cohesion, is it? The, 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 you know, not older and younger people get on with each other, actually. If they're allowed to mix with each other, they do get exactly. on with each other. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, when you look at those, those African tribes, for example, or, or Brazilian South American tribes, where families live together and, and, and uh, villages almost all live together and the elders have a particular role to play and they teach the young and there's a whole interaction that goes on between every age range. And there's a, there's a, lot, of, a lot of sense and wisdom in that. And I think we, we, we've lost a lot of that. And the idea, I mean, my mother died here in this, in this house with me. She died in my arms at the age of 92. She'd come to live with us. 
uh, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have heard of her going into a home. Now, I understand that there are cases where people do have to put um, their, their parents in homes, and I'm not criticizing that. But if it's not essential, then I think I, I would like, I like the idea of families all living together, you know, generation sharing and each doing their bit towards supporting the other generations in whatever support it is they need, whether it's schooling or it's babysitting or it's cooking or it's going out to work and earning some money or it's looking after someone who doesn't walk so well that you take walking every day. All of that, I, you know, that's very important to me. Yeah, and you know, I look back at my life, I'm 47, I look back at my early years and actually when I was in my 20s, most of my close friends were actually probably 20 years older than me. Um, but it seems, I, I speak to people now in their 20s and it, they tend to just socialise with people in their 20s. It's terribly sad the way mm. that, that's gone, really. And actually, yeah. you know, even today, my, my, my partner, uh, as, as grandma is 92, 93, and I have some of the best conversations I have with anybody with her. You know, she's fantastic. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. It, it, uh, age is to be celebrated, for heaven's sake, isn't it, really? You should be Perhaps. celebrated. Listen, so many people haven't got to the age that I am now. I've lost so many of my friends along the way. I've lost two this year through COVID, and, um, or one through COVID and one who was ill anyway. But, um, you know, it, first of all, I get up every day and I think, well, I'm still here when I wake up, you know, thank you, God. <laughs> I'm an Irish Catholic, I still say it, thank you, God. Um, you know, I'm still here. And please, God, at the moment, I'm healthy. I can, I'm a bit fat, but aside from that, you know, um, I'm still going and I'm very grateful for that. So I think we have to celebrate the fact that for every day we're given. My, my lovely 90-something um, auntie, my mother's younger sister, she's 91, she always says to me, nobody promised you tomorrow, Carol. And, you know, we have to live for the day and be grateful that we've got it. And I think that's really one of the basics. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcast. Space. Not so long ago. In a time of intergalactic turmoil, the peaceful tyranny of the Galactic Empire is forever being threatened by evil anarchist forces. What was that? Morning. Anarchist forces have launched a surprise attack on a Sun Crusher's outer defense craft. Only the Sun Crusher space station can bring order back to the Empire. This is not a drill, although they probably are using drills. And only one man and one robot have the administration skills to keep bureaucracy burning bright. You are so anal. I don't be ridiculous, Brack. I don't even have an anus. That's an exhaust port. Meet Brack Nubar. That's my payslip, isn't it? It's completely blank. And X769C. My gang homo has been engaged. Thrill as they take on giant brides and evil geniuses. She's beautiful. Really? She looks like a giant calculator on steroids. Gasp as they look death squarely in the face and then run away. Down a garbage chute. I'm not going down there. Written and performed by Ian McNess and Richard Delafield. Stop stroking yourself. It creeps me out. <clears throat> you don't get heroes like this. Kill me now. Just get it over with. Well, I do have this letter. Creep space. You okay now? Yes. So I can stop holding your hand. Yes. Available every Saturday on Distinct Comedy. Search for Distinct Comedy wherever you get your podcasts. So, turning things full circle, Ben, you've had a fantastic career, you've done lots of great things, but it's probably true to say then, when you think about it, that All Creatures Great and Small was part of that catalyst to those other things. It, it certainly opened doors for you, didn't it? Yes, before that, my very first job out of drama school was with Stanley Kubrick in A Clockwork Orange. I only had two lines, so, I mean, 
but it, that in itself has been an extraordinary calling card because I work with Stanley, you know, and I mean, of course, for me at the time, it was amazing, but I didn't realize also that that would be something that years later people would say, you work with Stanley Kubrick. And though I only had a day or two days or something, um, I did work with Stanley and, and he did write to me from time to time when I sent him letters, he'd always scribble answers on the letters and send them back. So I had had a few tastes of, of, um, of fame, if that's what you would call it, in advance of all creatures, but there is no doubt, no doubt, that All Creatures was the calling card to the world for me. It opened up doors all over the world for me. And for that, I will always be grateful, you know. Fabulous. I'm very proud of it too. I have nothing to be, you know, I don't mind people talking about when people say, oh, I bet you're bored with talking about it. No, why would I be? It's, it was a blessed and very fortunate time in my life. Why would one be churlish about that? Absolutely, and a fantastic programme. Um, you know, iconic program, and people use that iconic, all the time. But it, was, but it was iconic, and yeah, it was. Uh, for lots of different reasons. The you know the, the stories, the acting, the countryside, that fabulous theme tune, which goes around and around in my absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Did they ever, when you were doing scenes and things, did they ever play that? Did you ever hear that no. on a regular basis? No, 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 no. Because no. often no. that happens when when they're when they're doing stuff in comedies and things, they'll play. Um, the theme tune, or, or, or I, I interviewed the two like, two actors from Juliet Bravo, and apparently in, in the inside scenes on that, they would play the theme before they started. So every time they hear that now, at any time they get all quite nervous because they're, they're playing the theme. Because you know? <laughs> it's action. <laughs> yeah. No, we never got that. Never oh, you got mean that. like you know, like when we were in Pebble Mill. You mean if it was the first first scene in the show, they? Oh no, we never got that. No, no, no. Um, but of course, I've done lots of chat shows all over the world or whatever it is. And as as people say, now we're going to introduce Carol Drinkwater, and of course, as you come onto the set, off they go. You know. So it's certainly in my mind. It's definitely something that has stayed there but it's an exceedingly good tune there's no doubt about it it's very catchy um you can't forget it and, and theme tunes are very important we've interviewed a few theme tune uh, absolutely actually uh, simon may and a few others and um you know those yeah exactly they're, they're so important aren't they and in fact what annoys me now though is that what tends to happen at the end of a program is that the continuity announcer talks all over the theme and you can't hear it half the time they're, they're just telling you what's coming up next Oh, really? It is that yeah, it happens a lot now. Anyway, turning full circle, um, we're talking here about All Creatures Great and Small, and it is indeed back on our screens in, in Britain, um, as Channel 5 have decided to revive it with a new series, new set of actors, um, the same stories and things, but uh, they're back in Yorkshire, back in the countryside. Um, have you seen any of it? So have you heard about it? I've, oh, I've definitely heard about it. Everybody's been ringing me from dawn till dusk to give comments on it. Um, I, I've watched um, one and a bit episodes because I've been in Greece, so somebody had to send it to me through WeTransfer to get it to me so I could see something. Um, you probably don't know this, but when I heard it was going to be made again, um, I asked my agent to see, to ask her, Colin, who's the executive producer, uh, and Melissa, who's the other executive producer, if I could play Mrs. Pumphrey, but I didn't get the role. Um, so I did watch Die in her, uh, well, I saw one scene of Die. I don't know how many, if she's in, been in more than that. Which, and I thought she brought a wonderful quality to the role. Um, and of course it's, tragic that the day after she went you know the her scene went out she died um but uh so i've seen that and i've seen some of the um i saw uh, uh, some of the episode i think it was this week it showed in england of um of um i was gonna say tim of um sam <laughs> sam west with with the new nicholas is he the new james harriet about having to put a horse down, which I thought was very, very sensitively shot and acted. And of course, they've got, financially speaking, the, the production values are um, far and away above anything we had at the Beeb. I mean, this is, this is much more glossy Hollywood. And, it, and Yorkshire looks just stupendous, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it, it takes your breath away. Do you like the fact that it's come back? Because sometimes, sometimes these things happen that people try and revive things and they just... They're just not the same and it just doesn't feel right, does it? But do you think in this instance that, that they've got the feeling of it right? I mean, they've kept the theme tune, that's at the end as well. So that's quite nice. 
Um, when I first heard they were going to do it, I thought it was a mistake because it is ours, and I don't mean this conceitedly because as I say, I'm just one cog in this, it was iconic. And I think it did, it kind of, um, it's hard to kind of improve on it because everything gelled and it was such a success. That was my thinking when I first heard they were going to do it. However, I would have liked to blame Mrs. Pumphrey anyway. Um, and then I, when I watched some of it, the, the bits that I've seen, I actually thought that um, they've done, what, I think they've done something that is very, very sensible, which is they have not tried to do our programme. Though there's a lot of it that seems to have elements of our programme, it is very much, um, they could have changed the characters' names and the title, and it would have been a programme in its own right. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I know that many of the stories are the same, but the, it also has a flavour that is entirely its own. So it's not like it's a remake. It's like a, it's like a different thing altogether. I, that's what I think from the bits I've seen anyway. In some ways, it reminds me, and this really dates me, when I was a tiny, a very small child, there was a programme on TV called Dr. Finley's Casebook. And... Uh, Bits of this new All Creatures actually more reminded me of that than of All Creatures. Yeah, yeah. I've seen some of these. I, I think you're right, probably, actually. Um, what do you think it is, then, about... Well, I mean, what is it about that, those stories and about that sort of setting and whatever that makes people want to come back to it? And why do you think it's... Because I gather it's doing reasonably well. Um, why do you think it's still attractive today? You know, that period and the countryside and all the rest of it. What, what's the magic of it? Is it about the animals? What do you think? Well, I think first and foremost, anything right now that is a respite from what is going on with this COVID and in, in, in your country, um, in Britain, I mean, um, uh, the upcoming Brexit and, and the backtracking and forward tracking on all of that. I think the British general public uh, 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 you know they're up to their they're up to their eyes in muck you know <laughs> so going out and seeing a few cows standing around in mud and shit is nothing compared to what's going on so i think anyone is grateful for something that actually has features that are life affirming you know, I mean, the programme was immensely life-affirming. It was uplifting because of that. It also was, it had an innocence about it. And goodness knows, are we jaded now, you know? It feels that most of the world leaders are corrupt. And, you know, and in all creatures, I know that we, we came up to the war episodes and James going off to war and all of that. And there, Helen had a few words to say about, you know, that this, would, that this was not a good thing at all. And she spoke quite strongly about that i think that um i think and i'm waffling now but i think that you know that that sense of um all's well with the world and of course all it's never that all's well with the world there's always another another take on life but isn't it wonderful just for a, a short time to be able to believe that all's well with the world i mean i i'm a great believer in happy, happy endings you know and though people say that oh that's a bit fairy taleish i think it's immensely important for us to, to maintain that sense of optimism or you know and newspapers the media are, are, are responsible for a lot of that because they put so much negativity out they do and i think all creatures is so positive it's about birth it's also about life and death but it is about new beginnings it's about um people working together it's about the best of us it also this, this, this as you said we go back right again back to the beginning but the, the books and the stories have a, a gentle a gentle humor yeah that's the nice bit about and, it. and as i said you know alf wrote about what he loved he loved his world and he wanted to embrace it and to give that to the reader and there's nothing condescending about the way he does that and that's what i think is a great lesson for me as a writer to take from alf's work and i hope i have is that actually to share with people something that you that you that you want them to enjoy and appreciate with as much passion as you do and his passion is very gentle it's not like me i'm you know but his passion is a very gentle gentlemanly passion but it's as deeply felt, you know, and I think that is something that we probably, when we see all these tweets and 
excerpts on the television of what politicians are saying and lies and all of that. You just kind of say, give me just a bit of basic humanity and goodness. And this program provides it. And that sounds like a... In buckets. Yeah, it sounds like a good place to end. A nice, positive place to end. Uh, Carol, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM and there are loads more excellent shows to listen to on our website. Danny Rogers recalls growing up with 321's Dusty Bin. So my first encounter with Dusty Bin was my dad sort of wheeling him out as a young boy. I had no clue what this thing was and I was frightened, of course, but as it went on I was like, oh, this is my new best friend. <laughs> and I was one of the lucky few that actually had one in their bedroom. Kathy Gorey discusses the legacy of Rosemary the Telephone Operator. Hello, hello! I had an effect on a bunch of Gen Xers, or maybe I was their first female crush or something, but I meet men, some of them quite powerful now, who grew up watching me. You watching Rosemary rather but I thought this is nuts and they let me do pretty much what I wanted to do everything was always rhyming some you call the police department talk Hong Kong and that's that's what I thought Rosemary would sound like and John Boy himself talks about his childhood with the Waltons it was really one of the great ensemble TV shows I mean we had 11 regulars and although the story was told from John Boy's point of view one of the great things about the show was the main story could be about the little kid one week or it could be about the grandparents so you had all this wonderful generational comprehensiveness about it and so i would call it first and foremost a great ensemble these programs and many more are available at distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts subscribe to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available and if you like what we do then please consider supporting us on patreon every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button thank you for listening and bye for now distinct nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with life rooms and mercy care nhs foundation trust We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.